So it's just about Father's Day. Uh, I've been a dad for a little more than eight years, and I've come to realize that dads carry with them a special, divinely given responsibility and gift within the home. In speaking with other dads, I've had this affirmed, that they carry this same sense of responsibility, this same gift, this same um, uh, divinely given uh, responsibility within the home. Here's what it is. Dads have the special job of reminding everyone else in the household to turn off the lights when they leave the room. I don't know how many times as a father I have wandered around my empty house turning off all of the lights that have been left on by my other family members. It it is a divinely given responsibility for fathers to remind the rest of the family that lights do not need to be on uh, when uh, people are not in the room. Uh, You can type amen in the comments if this is your experience as well. Uh, Parents, you know that sometimes there are things that you just have to repeat to your children over and over again. Clean up your room, uh, eat your food, stop yelling at me, I'm right next to you. Like these are things that you just have to say over and over and over again. Or maybe you're an employer that has employees and you continually have to remind them of the same thing over and over and over and over again. And you hope that one day they will finally understand and internalize the message that it is that you're sharing with them. We've reached a point in our study of Daniel where we should be getting the the repeated message by now. Uh, It seems like God, through Daniel, is reminding us over and over and over and over again to turn off the lights, so to speak. He's reminding us of a common message in every single chapter. And now in our eighth week studying this book, uh, we're reminding ourselves of this again in different words every time that we've gone through. We've used different words to describe the same theme. And the overarching theme that we've, we've talked about right from day one of studying Daniel is that God is in control even when the world seems like it's out of control. That God is a plan, that God is sovereign over all of the kingdoms that will come and kingdoms that will go. Even when we face as believers pressure from outside, from culture, from society, from government, through, through any kind of, uh, of pressure because of what we believe, God is faithful to us, and God is sovereign in those situations, and we can look to him for strength and perseverance. We come to another reminder of this in Daniel chapter 8. Now, we've entered the second half of the book of Daniel and remind ourselves here that in the second half of Daniel, we're looking at what's often called apocalyptic literature or apocalyptic prophecy. And so, the, the, the um, genre here is using all kinds of different images and pictures to describe things that are coming. Prophecy in the Bible doesn't always refer to things that are going to happen in the future, but in this case, and in this chapter specifically, it does. It refers to things that are going to come. And they're written down so that they might encourage the people of God to be faithful, encourage and remind the people of God that God is in control. And so it's with with that understanding that we read what we'll read today. We also remind ourselves that with apocalyptic prophecy, trying to fixate on all of the details is probably not the best use of our time. In chapter 8, we're going to do pretty well, actually, with matching details with historical events. But there are some things that are still confusing, images that don't quite line up with what we know from history or things that we question And those are fine questions to ask and to explore, but if we focus on them at the expense of missing the big picture, then we've missed the point of what's trying to be communicated here. So let's get the big message that that, uh, Daniel and the Lord through Daniel is trying to get to us today. 
And Daniel 8, I'll summarize the main point this way, which is kind of looking at things in, in a bit of a different way, but the same kind of theme. We'll summarize it by saying this, kingdom people pursue the king's agenda. Kingdom people pursue the king's agenda. Uh, one author has described the book of Daniel, uh, Daniel as a manual for the suffering church. It tells us how we ought to respond in times of difficulty. And what we'll see in this chapter here is that when we belong to God's kingdom, we pursue the king's agenda, no matter what the pressure might be that's coming from the outside. So, as we read Daniel 8 today, I'll stop at various points to describe what is being described and to look at the historical correlation between the vision and what eventually would happen. Some people believe that parts of the book of Daniel, and especially chapter 8 and chapter 11, were written much later than the rest of the book. And they believe this because the events that are described through a vision in Daniel chapter 8 came true in the second century BC with so much specificity and detail that people think it's impossible for someone to have written this ahead of time. They must be writing it with the benefit of hindsight because they've already seen the events that have happened. Now, if you don't allow that God is sovereign and sees the future and could have given Daniel a vision that describes these things in great detail, then you're forced to come up with that kind of an explanation. It doesn't bother me that Daniel wrote this four centuries before the events occurred because the Lord was giving him this vision and giving him this vision so that people might be prepared for the kinds of things that they might have to walk through. So here we go, Daniel chapter 8, starting in verse 1. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign... I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that had already appeared to me. So again, we stop and, and remember that the chronology of events in Daniel placed this between Daniel 4 and Daniel 5, uh, the reign of King Belshazzar in his third year. In chapter 7, the vision Daniel uh, received was in the first year of King Belshazzar's reign. So this is two years after that first vision that we saw in Daniel 7. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa in the province of Elam. In the vision, I was before, beside the Ulai Canal. This is in Persia. Daniel's not actually in Persia, but his vision has him in Persia. In verse 3, I looked up, and there before me was a ram with two horns, standing beside the canal, and the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. I watched the ram as it charged toward the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against it, and none could rescue from its power. It did as it pleased, and it became great. Now, I'll stop here and tell you what this ram represents. We're going to find out later in the chapter, but just for our sake, we'll, we'll jump to that. This ram represents the kingdoms of the Medes and the Persians. Remember last year, Daniel, or last chapter rather, Daniel had a vision of four beasts and they represented different kingdoms. And one, or perhaps two, depending on your inter interpretation, uh, referred to the kingdoms of the Medes and the Persians. Now these kingdoms combined into one under the rulership of King Cyrus. And so this, uh, they, they represent the two horns on the ram. The second one was longer and grew up later. This is the kingdom of Persia that came along and took over the, the, the kingdom of the Medes. Now, this kingdom, the Medo-Persian Empire, was the largest empire known to man to date. And as Daniel sees in the vision, it seemed like it was so powerful that no one could possibly overtake it. It was, it was so powerful, so great. It did whatever it pleased. Sometimes we face challenges in our lives that seem too great to be overcome. Or sometimes there are powers that rise in our world that seem 
too great to be overcome. And yet, verse 5 comes along and says, As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between its eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. Think of the speed at which it's traveling. It came toward the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and charged at it in great rage. I saw it attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering its two horns. The ram, which looked so powerful just a moment ago, was powerless to stand against it. The goat knocked it to the ground and trampled on it, and none could rescue the ram from its power. The goat became very great. Now, let's stop here. This goat represents the kingdom of Greece. Uh, the, the, the Greek empire was rising to prominence under the leadership of Alexander the Great, who's represented by this great horn on this goat. Alexander the Great came and conquered the civilized world with surprising speed. And by the time he was 33, he had conquered most of the civilized world. Again, we see this kingdom now seems to be so powerful that it could never be overcome. And yet, we read in verse 8, The goat became very great, but at the height of its power, its large horn was broken off. And in its place, four prominent horns grew up towards the four winds of heaven. Alexander the Great died when he was 33 years old in 323 BC, and his kingdom was divided among four of his generals. So the, the great horn was knocked off of this goat, and four horns grew up in its place, representing these four generals that would take over parts of the kingdom. We'll return to those in a moment. Notice also the language of the four winds of heaven here. We saw this back in chapter 7 where these beasts that Daniel saw there rose out of the sea, this evil place of chaos and unpredictability, but yet the sea was churned up by the four winds of heaven, which told us that even though these kingdoms will rise and they will be very evil in their nature, they are still under the sovereignty and control of God who has appointed them for such a time as this. We see the four winds of heaven also in play in this chapter, reminding us of God's sovereignty. So these four horns have grown up, and verse 9, Out of one of them came another horn, which started small, but grew in power to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land. Now, the beautiful land is a reference to Israel, and specifically the region of Judah and the city of Jerusalem. Now this, remember, is happening in the future, almost 400 years in the future. But in Daniel's near future, when he's having this vision, King Cyrus is going to come to power and he's going to allow the exiles in Babylon to go back to Jerusalem. And we'll read, or you could read in the Old Testament stories of Ezra and Nehemiah, of the people returning and rebuilding the temple and rebuilding the walls around Jerusalem. So 400 years in the future, the people have rebuilt the city. They're living there, but they've never really been free again. They've always been under the power of some sort of empire, under the thumb of, of somebody else. They've had some level of independence, but they've never quite been free like they were when they inherited the promised land. Now, verse 9 talks about this, this other horn that grew up. We're going to talk about this one character quite a bit in a few moments, but there's a one ruler who will rise to power who will oppress God's people. So we're going to start reading about some of the things that he's going to do. Verse 10, this horn grew until it reached the host of the heavens, and it threw some of the starry host down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as the commander of the army of the Lord. It took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord, and his sanctuary was thrown down. Because of rebellion, his rebellion, the Lord's people and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. 
Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to him, How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? Now, notice the question is how long. We would like the question to be why. Why would God allow this? But the question is how long. And the question is how long because this is given to Daniel so that people might be prepared for what they might have to walk through. And this how long question might give them a sense of how much perseverance is going to be required of them when these events come to pass. How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, the surrender of the sanctuary, and the trampling underfoot of the Lord's people. He said to me, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings and then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. We'll come back to that detail in a while. Verse 15, while I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there before me stood one who looked like a man, and I heard a man's voice from the Uli calling Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. Angels are only given uh, or are called by name uh, in Daniel in the Old Testament, Gabriel and Michael in an upcoming chapter. Gabriel, tell the man the meaning of this vision. As he came near the place where I was standing, I was terrified and I fell prostrate. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision concerns the times of the end. Now, let's pause there for a moment and ask ourselves, what does it mean that this vision concerns the time of the end? There's three ways to understand it. One could be that Gabriel is saying that the time of the end refers to the times of the things described in this vision. So with the benefit of hindsight, we know that these events were fulfilled in the second century BC. So Gabriel's talking about the end being the the events in the second century BC, the end of this vision. Some scholars interpret the time of the end to mean the time of the very end, though. And and this, with our New Testament understanding, we would say the time of the second coming of Christ. This is referring to that end. A third understanding might be more likely. It would suggest that the time of the end refers mostly to the events of the second century BC, but there are themes that will arise from those events that will stay true for God's people throughout the rest of history all the way until the time of the end. There are lessons that we ought to learn from these events that ought to carry with us. So verse 18, while he was speaking to me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. He didn't have the strength to stand in the presence of this angelic being. Then he touched me and raised me to my feet. He said, I'm going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece, Alexander the Great. And the large horn between its eyes is the first king, Alexander. The four horns that replace the one that was broken off represent four kingdoms, that will emerge from his nation, but they will not have the same power. In the latter part of their reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a fierce-looking king, a master of intrigue, will arise. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy those who are mighty, the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper, and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. Okay, this same individual, which we'll identify in just a moment, is referred to in chapter 11. Daniel has another vision in which he sees this same ruler from verse 21 to 35 in Daniel chapter 11, this ruler is described again, 
And we read in verse 31 a little more detail about what he will do. It says, His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. With flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant. But the people who know their God will firmly resist him. Chapter 8 concludes this way, verse 26. The vision of the evening, evenings and mornings that has been given to you is true, but seal it up or protect it, for it concerns the distant future. I, Daniel, was worn out. I lay exhausted for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. What a crazy vision, crazy story with so many details uh, there for us to explore. Like I said, a a lot of these details uh, uh, correlate to things that actually happened in the 2nd century BC. So let me uh, go through a little bit of history with apologies to Rick Thiessen for not taking his comparative civilizations class in grade 11. uh, We have some history to look at and some civilizations to explore. So we've talked about how the the Greeks took over from the Medo-Persian Empire. Alexander the Great came and, and was this great and powerful military leader. He died in 323 when he was 33 years old. His kingdom was divided four different ways among four of his generals, and two of those generals deserve our attention. The first one was a guy by the name of Ptolemy, that's P-T-O-L-E-M-Y, and the second one was a guy by the name of Seleucus. These two were rivals. The Seleucid kingdom was kind of in the north and the east of the Mediterranean Sea, and the Ptolemaic kingdom was south of the Mediterranean Sea towards Egypt and kind of spread around towards Israel. In fact, originally Judah and Jerusalem were under the the influence of the Ptolemaic kingdom until about 200 BC when the Seleucids came at them and drove them down south and took over the region of Judah and Jerusalem. Now, eventually, a guy came to power in the Seleucid kingdom. This is the figure that we've read about here who's going to cause so much destruction to God's people. His name was Antiochus IV, and he gave himself the name Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, the name Epiphanes means God manifest. So he was claiming that he himself was a deity and worthy of that kind of praise and worship. He actually put that phrase, Antiochus Epiphany, on his coins. Now, the Jews kind of mocked him and changed his name uh, from Epiphanes to Epimanes, which means madman, which gives you a sense as to the kind of character he was as a ruler. Now, his ambition was to expand his empire, of course, and so as the leader of the Seleucid Empire, he did repeated invasions into Egypt against the, the Ptolemaic Empire, trying to overtake down there. And after several of these offenses, he was down there one time and looked like there was some promise that he might actually take over when Rome appeared out of nowhere. And actually, Daniel 11 prophesies about this. In verse 29, it says, At the appointed time, he, this is Antiochus Epiphanes, will invade the south again, the the Ptolemaic Empire. But this time, the outcome will be different than what it was before. Ships of the western coastland will oppose him and he will lose heart. Then he will turn back and vent his fury against the Holy Covenant. He will return and show favor to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. So he's down south in Egypt and Rome shows up. And the story goes like this. The Roman general, who apparently was an elderly man, stood before Antiochus Epiphanes and he said, you are either going to leave with your army right now or you're going to consider yourself also at war with Rome. 
Antiochus Epiphanes was a bit taken aback, probably a little surprised, definitely angry, and asked for some time to think about it. And this elderly general, so the story goes, took a stick and drew a circle in in the dirt around Antiochus Epiphanes and said, before you leave this circle, you will tell me if you are leaving or if you are now at war with Rome as well. So Antiochus Epiphanes did the wise thing and left. Now, set that aside for just a moment and let's think about the the role of Jerusalem at, at the time of the Seleucid Empire. Antiochus had come to power, and part of what he did to fund his military campaigns was to raid temples in the cities that he went to. And so he did this in Jerusalem. He raided the temple, he looted it, he took everything of value from it in order to fund his military campaigns. He also, at that time, auctioned off the position of high priest to the highest bidder, which was a a sacrilegious thing to do. Uh, And so first he auctioned it off to a guy by the name of Jason who became the high priest, but soon someone else offered Antiochus Epiphany more money. And so a guy by the name of Menelaus came to be the the high priest instead of Jason. Now over time, Jason was upset about this, and so he started a, a kind of violent uprising against Menelaus because he had taken his position. In uh, 169 BC, Antiochus Epiphanes came through Jerusalem at the time when Jason was doing this uprising, and he understood the violence happening in Jerusalem as a revolt against himself. And so Antiochus Epiphanes instituted a bloodbath in Jerusalem. In the book of 1 Maccabees, which is an apocryphal book of Jewish history, it tells that 80,000 Jewish people at that time were either killed or sold into slavery. So there was this this uh, attempt at control that Antiochus Epiphanes is already applying to Jerusalem. Now, remember this failure that he had in Egypt to the Romans. After that, he was so angry and needed to vent his anger somehow that he decided to institute a paganization program in Jerusalem. Basically, everyone was, was told that you have to give up your Jewish religion. And if you don't, you will die. Uh, This is some of what that paganization program called for. It called for the abolition of the temple cult. And when we use the word cult, they're simply meaning worship practices. The abolition of the, the worship practices of the temple, the abolition of the observance of the law, and the substitution of pagan worship practices instead. The observance of all Jewish ordinances, and particularly those relating to the Sabbath and circumcision, were prohibited on the pain of death. In every town in Judea, sacrifice was to be offered to the heathen gods. Overseers were sent everywhere to see that the royal command was carried out. Where the people did not comply willingly, they were obliged to do so by force. Once a month, a check was made, and whoever was found with a scroll of the Torah, the Old Testament law, or had had a child circumcised was put to death. In December of 167 BC, a heathen altar was built in Jerusalem, on the great altar of burnt offering, and on 25 Kislev, that's in December, that's a, Kislev is a month, the first heathen sacrifice was offered on it. And Jewish history tells us that it was a pig, which is an unclean animal to the Jewish people, was slaughtered in the temple, offered on an altar that had been constructed to, the, to, to Zeus, to the, to the god Zeus. And offered there. So when you read in chapter 11, verse 31, about the abomination that causes desolation, it's referring specifically to this altar and this sacrifice that was made. And the daily sacrifices that the Jews were used to making were put to a halt. 
Now, another dynamic happening in Jerusalem at this time is that because of the pressure on the Jews, some of the Jews were simply acquiescing to Antiochus Epiphanes and to the ways that he was prescribing for them. You know, we read in verse 30 that, um, that uh, he, will, he will push back, he will vent his fury against the Holy Covenant. He will return and show favor to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. And in verse uh, 32, with flattery, he will corrupt those who violate the covenant. So there were those who were just giving up on their Jewish ways to avoid the, the, the persecution that they were going to endure. This caused a lot of tension between Jews who were being faithful and Jews who were not being faithful. Now, there's, a more, there's lots more history that you could explore. There's a, a fascinating thing that you could look up of how the Jews actually regained control of the temple. Uh, it's called the Maccabean Revolt. A guy by the name of Judah Maccabee uh, re- uh, banded a group of people together to rise up against the Seleucids. And there's some miraculous stories about how God provided for them. And uh, actually the Jewish uh, observance of Hanukkah came from that experience. And you can look that up. It's beyond what da- uh, Daniel talks about in, and sees in this vision. One more detail for us to clarify is that 2,300 mornings and evenings. What does that actually refer to? Uh, it, there's two ways you could understand it. 2,300 days is approximately seven years. And uh, Antiochus Epiphany opposed Jerusalem for approximately seven years, between 171 and December of 165 uh, B.C. Or you could say the morning sacrifice or the morning counts as one and the evening counts as one. So 2,300 evenings and mornings is actually 1,150 days. And that is about three and a half years, which correlates to the time when the temple itself was under siege. So either of those interpretations uh, can make sense. So fascinating how the Bible applies this vision given 400 years before the events that happen. And they happen so specifically to what Daniel actually saw. Now, I said to someone this week, this is an easy passage to teach because there's a correlation between the prophecy and the actual history that happened. It's a little bit more difficult to preach because there's no moral lesson really given here out of these events. It's simply presented as this is what's going to happen. So we do have some work to do to say, so what? What does this actually mean for us? What's the point that we are supposed to walk away from this with? How is this contribute to Daniel as a manual for the suffering church? What are we supposed to understand? Well, I'm going to suggest a number of things. The first one is that it reminds us that God not only knows history, but he directs it. He not only knows what's happening, he not only knows what's going to happen, but nothing happens outside of his control. We've seen this in Daniel, that that rulers are are lifted to power for their appointed time. No more than their appointed time, but for their appointed time. And sometimes we don't know why a given thing will happen. We don't know why the Jews had to go through so much oppression and experience so much pain and suffering and death. But we know that God not only knows history, but he directs it. Next, we want to reflect a little bit on how kingdom people pursue the king's agenda. How do we, as, as people of the kingdom of God, pursue the king's agenda in light of possible and, um, and, and certain oppression and persecution? Not only in a time like what the Jews experienced, but in our time and going into the future. We remember uh, first in 11 verse 32, That the people who know their God will firmly resist him. Speaking of Antiochus Epiphanes. 
The people who know their God will have the strength to stand against whatever kind of pressure and oppression might come. So how do we keep our eyes on God? How do we know God so that we will have the strength to stand? Well, we keep our eyes on God. And then we do a number of things. Here's, here's a few ideas that, that we can take out of this chapter. The first one is we avoid catastrophizing. <laughs> this is a point that Larry Osborne makes on his book, Thriving in Babylon. And he talks about how Daniel went through all kinds of terrible experiences. And yet somehow he was able to avoid catastrophizing, thinking that the sky was falling. And even though in this chapter he is greatly distressed and he's greatly troubled at what the people of God will have to walk through. He knows because of what he's experienced in the rest of the book that God will be faithful and that God will be there, that God will give strength to go through these kinds of things. We see this in our day, right? It's easy for us to catastrophize about the kinds of things that have happened in our world and happen in our world. And we can easily lose hope. In fact, that's the danger of catastrophizing is when you look at the possible catastrophes that are coming or the things uh, around us or the ways in which the world is falling apart, we quickly turn our eyes to those things and, and lose our focus on God. And it's in those moments we lose our focus on the sovereignty of God. Larry Osborne says that when we catastrophize, we imagine facing the things we dread with the spiritual strength that we currently have We forget that even if everything that we're worried about happens, we won't have to face it with the spiritual strength that we currently have. We will face it in the strength that God provides the day that it actually happens. God walks through us through all of the difficulties that we will face. I'll bet that if you look through the last 15 or 16 months, you will see that you had strength that you didn't know that you had before because God gave it to you when you needed it. So we keep our eyes on God and not on all of the problems in the world. The second thing, in a second way in which we pursue the king's agenda is that we, we're aware and beware of idols. When we look back on the rest of the book, we see the first six chapters are six stories. And these six stories take on a different flavor once we enter the second half of the book. The stories are not just stories on their own. They, they become a, a kind of para, paradigmatic way in which God's people can stand under pressure. And the people in the second century BC were likely reading these stories of Daniel and his friends standing up under oppression and standing up under persecution. And reading those stories gave them hope that they also could stand up under pressure. So what is one of the things that we learn from the stories that can be applied now is that we are aware of idols. We see this very clearly in chapter 3 when a golden idol is, is set up. You know, it's almost laughable in that chapter that they would even consider bowing down to it. Because idols aren't usually so easily identified in our lives. And yet the challenge from that story remains, we are aware of idols in our own lives. So that our, our heart, our affection is not taken away from God and put on other things. So what kind of hold does money have in your life? What kind of affection do you harbor in your heart for advancing your your career, advancing your sphere of influence, advancing your bank account, advancing what it is that you own? What kind of pull does that thing have on your heart? Because here's the question, how do you know if you can stand under pressure before it comes? 
Well, you know that you can stand under pressure if you love God more than anything else. But if idols are standing in the way, then you don't love God more than anything else. And when, tre- when pressure comes, it will be easy for you to abandon the Lord. So beware of idols. Next, the way that we keep our eyes on the king's agenda is to devote ourselves to prayer. We see this in Daniel 6 when he's under pressure and even told not to pray. It's laughable that he wouldn't pray. He leans into prayer, asking God for direction. And what we study next week in chapter 9 will be an extended prayer of Daniel. That this is how we approach the times that we are in is through prayer. So here's a question. How much time have you spent praying about current events compared to the amount of time that you have spent searching the internet for answers or talking to other people about what they think about what's going on? How much time have you spent approaching God and asking him for his insight into what it is that is happening in our world today and how we ought to respond to it? We also have another reminder that God is the only constant that you can rely on. We see this in uh, chapter uh, 8 where some kingdoms seem so powerful that they could never be conquered and then in the next verse they're conquered. We see it in chapter 11 when it talks about the kings of the north and the south and we read about the plans that the king has and he, he was going to go and do this but then this happened and then he was going to go and do this but then this happened. These empires might seem powerful, but they don't have ultimate power. Only God has that. You know, we might reflect on uh, Psalm 145, uh, verse 3, which says, Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. His greatness is greater than any of the kingdoms that will come or the kingdoms that will go. We're reminded in, in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the only constant thing that we can rely on. And so we must keep looking to him. Next, we, we need to lean on each other. And we need to lean on the unity of the church. This is something I want to talk about a lot more next week. But when there is so much pressure from outside the church, the only way that we will stand is if we are united within the church. When we see each other as allies, as brothers and sisters in the faith, when we hold true to the core doctrine that we have been called to, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, we need each other if we're going to stand and be faithful in terrible times. We'll talk more about that a lot next week. And then finally, as I looked at at the the instruction given to Daniel around these visions that he had, the the message that Daniel got from the angel was simply this, go about your business. (laughs) Go about your business. Uh, Verse 27 and verse 8. uh, Daniel was worn out and lay exhausted for several days. Then he got up and went about the king's business. In chapter 12, we get some instruction to Daniel at the very end of the book in verses 9 and 10 and 13. Uh, The angel Michael said, Go on your way, Daniel, because the words are rolled up and sealed until the time of the end. Many will be purified, made spotless and refined, but the wicked will continue to be wicked. None of the wicked will understand, but those that are wise will understand. Verse 13, As for you, go your way until the end. You will rest, and then at the end of days you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. 
In other words, there's going to be terrible times that are coming, and there will be pressure that will come upon God's people. But go about your business. You are a servant of the King of, the king of Kings. You belong to the kingdom of God. So if your eyes are on the king, go about your business. In Daniel's case, this was even the king's business, working within this government. Go about what God has called you to do and be faithful the best that you know how. And God will provide you with the strength that you need when that terrible time comes. So God is in control even when the world seems like it's out of control. Our responsibility as his people are to keep our eyes on the king and to pursue his agenda. It's amazing to me how the Bible speaks with such great authority on the things that happen in this world. And so we can have great confidence in what God tells us through Daniel and through these incredible stories. So friends, how is it that you need this week to pursue the king's agenda? In what way are maybe your eyes been taken off of what the king of kings is asking you to do? And onto the troubles and the trials of this time. Focus your eyes on him and he will give you strength. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word which speaks so clearly and so accurately to the world in which we live. We are humbled and in awe of you. And we are sobered by the, the pressure that the church uh, uh, has to live under. And the second century BC is a terrible example of that. And we can look at history and find other periods of time where that same kind of dynamic was at play. Father, we pray that you would help us to be faithful no matter what we walk through, no matter how much pressure might be applied to the church in our lifetime. We ask that we would be faithful to you and that you would give us strength to pursue your agenda. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.